Section 11 of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7. The Logic of Love. Part 1. June found the club still suffering from the defection of Israfel. There was no member whose loss could have grieved us so much. In him the club lost at once a butt and a buttress. Take him for all and in all, we felt we should not look upon his like again. Joseph Fogson, M.D., B.S.C., had drowned his grief in medicine. He went practicing in Bethnal Green, just to oblige an old and overworked hospital chum who was knocked up too frequently in the dead of night. Joseph Fogson had no need to practice on helpless invalids for a living, for he had a private fortune. It was left to him unexpectedly after he had spent the best years of his youth in poring over miserable books and cutting up wretched dry-as-dust corpses. He was a terrible toiler, and brilliant to boot, and had won all sorts of medals and scholarships, and had none of the virtues of the medical charlatan, and never dreamed of anything but a lifetime of mitigated poverty. So when the solicitor told him he was worth two thousand a year he was dreadfully annoyed. Remorse for his squandered youth sat in severely. He wasted months in regretting the time he had wasted. Verily a young man may sow his wild oats, but conscience will not digest the harvest without aches and agonies manifold. His repentance came too late to avail him. His youthful excesses of work had impoverished his system. The exuberance necessary to enjoyment was forever vanished. It was a terrible sermon on the vanity of labor. It was no less forcible a homily on the slavery of habit. Our old vices cannot be cast off like our old clothes and exchanged for new. We have inoculated ourselves with them, and they cannot be expelled from the blood. Thus it was that when Joseph Fogson, M.D., B.S.C., went to Bethel Green as a substitute for his chum, he worked shockingly hard and did a frightful amount of good to the sickly residents of the dreary district, and all for nothing, too, which hardly seemed fair. It was all very well for him to look after my health without fee, but what claim had these Bethnal Greenlanders upon him? I was glad to meet him in the Strand at last, and to divine from his presence there that his thankless task was over. I held up my hand to him warmly, for it was almost a fortnight since I had seen him. How am I? I said heartily. He grasped my hand cordially and placed his finger upon my wrist. You are seedy, old man he said instantly. You are queer. I was so alarmed and surprised that my umbrella fell from my other hand, and my head began to ache. Evidently I had felt the loss of Israfel more deeply than I had imagined. Joseph rescued my umbrella from under the feet of a careless chorus girl who was trampling on it with the haughtiness of a prima donna. Then he said, And how am I, Paul? Not quite well, thank you. I said, for his face told a sad tale of late hours and late patience. It was a fine, handsome, sympathetic face at its best, with a noble forehead, a neat moustache, and dreamy blue-gray eyes. You are right, he said wearily. I feel quite washed out. Strange how a week's work floors me. I shall never make old bones, though I may lecture on them. His demeanor made me anxious. And what do you advise me to take? I inquired nervously. A holiday, he replied. Go for a walking tour. Oh, but it's only June, I said. Only clerks leave town in June. 
you can't put off your seedy time till a more fashionable month can you no i replied sadly it is a great nuisance because i am very fond of walking tours but if i go will you come with me he refused point-blank but i persuaded him at last we'll start to-day he said resignedly june is a lovely month for walking tours the sun's not so scorching as later oh but i'm not ready to start i said nonsense you just pack a satchel or a knapsack with a few necessities this sort of thing you know he half drew out a cloth bag from his coat-tail pocket and shoved it back you impostor i said you have trapped me you were looking out for a companion for your own walking tour he smiled frankly i won't go with you i said laughingly i don't see why i should go as a companion to a gentleman for nothing oh if that's all i'll pay the exes i refused point-blank but he persuaded me at last after all it was a shame to see his money giving enjoyment to no one and if i were with him i might brighten him up a bit but i prefer a walking tour by bicycle i urged walking tours on foot are so slow you get over so little country but i can't ride a bicycle answered joseph fogson m d b s c i could not either that is why i wanted to and said so with truth i grumbled so at having to make this fresh concession to fogson's convenience that by the time we started it was understood that i was placing him under a heavy obligation on allowing him to be responsible for my expenses we made a bee-line more or less for portsmouth and interrupting our walk we sailed from south sea across the crisping channel to the garden of england we landed safely upon the right tight little island secured at every point by a merciless battery of pier tolls against all danger of invasion by vagram ishmaels the weather was glorious the sky glittered like a sapphire the sea sparkled like champagne and i felt as if i had swallowed some even fogson was slightly inebriated by the glow and freshness of an unreal english summer as we struck across the flowering odorous isle inhaling the ozone and watching the many beautifully painted butterflies fluttering among the poppies fogson grew quite jolly and told me the names of everything in latin i paid no attention to him but i remember not one of the butterflies had a plain double-jointed christian name each had been christened as complexly as if it were a peer of the realm we did not follow the usual tourist route but explored the interior which is a maze of loveliness abounding in tempting perspectives every leafy avenue is rich in promise such nestling farmhouses such peeping spires such quaint red-tiled cottages such picturesque old-fashioned mullion windows such delicious wafts of perfume from the gardens and orchards such bits of beautiful old england as are perhaps nowhere else so profusely scattered suddenly fogson heaved a sigh of content what does this remind you of paul he said of mandeville brown i answered immediately of mandeville brown he echoed incredulously yes i said i keep thinking what a fool he is to say that life is not worth living i wish he was here i don't fogson burst forth he would blight the deep peace of nature he would be like the serpent in paradise bringing it to the knowledge of good and evil ah what a fine old allegory was that oh this disease of thought thought about things was the primitive curse but thought about thought is the modern malison 
I was surprised to find this vein of sentiment in the man of science. But you can learn more of a man by living with him two days than by two years of superficial association spread over ten. But I did not use the word remind in your sense, he went on more calmly. What this scene, with its rustic beauty and its idyllic sweetness, its healthy freshness, reminds me of the very antithesis of Mandeville Brown. Yes? I said encouragingly, for I do not like to see a man hesitate on the edge of a revelation. It reminds me... It reminds you of... No matter, you don't know her. Her? I grew pale. Doesn't matter, I said. I should like to. It reminds you of... It reminds me, he said, and his eyes filled with soft, dreamy light. It reminds me of Barbara. A swarm of gorgeous butterflies seemed whirling before my eyes, but I walked on, keeping time with the sentimental doctor of medicine. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. So we plod on in our dull mechanic tasks. Though the universe lies, examine it at our feet. And who is Barbara? I said at length. Barbara is... And again his eyes wore the rapt, ecstatic look of an acurite, beholding a heavenly vision, of a poet bodying forth the shapes of things unknown. Barbara is... the incarnation of all that is most fair and pure and exquisite and sweet English girlhood. She is the warmth of the heart and the light of the eyes. Her instincts are pure as the white rose she wears at her bosom. She is healthy without coarseness and chaste without consciousness or prudery. And she looks at you candidly with limpid blue eyes. She is joyous and debonair as a May morning. She dresses in spotless white with a simple hat of straw. She speaks no language but her mother tongue. But, oh, how sweet the Saxon words ripple from between her pearly teeth in a flowing music of syllables. And when she sings some simple air, the soul of this fair motherland of ours seems to have entered into the song, and it breathes of new-mown hay, and harvest wains, and russet orchards, and snowy hawthorn, and calm lowing kine, and the white moon, and bowls of bubbly milk, rich and creamy, and the soft restfulness of nature, and the gentle ordered life of rustic generations, and the sweet sanctities of old household ways, and old-fashioned fireplaces ruddy with rough, crackling logs, and wainscoted chambers, and huge smoking platters, and diamond panes, and jasmine, and eglatine. He paused suddenly. He had forgotten himself. He remembered me. He stole a sidelong, embarrassed look at me. So that is Barbara, I said, mastering my emotion and the thought of McGillicuddy. Yes, that is Barbara. And where does she live? On a farm in the heart of rural England, he answered readily. She has never been to London. She does not play the piano. She has not been philistinized by a refined education. She cuts bread and makes butter with her own white hands. She milks the cows in the morning. A dairymaid, I said. No, no, she is the farmer's daughter. Is she tall or short? Medium. Her figure is lissome. The curves tremble upon womanhood. 
she moves as gracefully as a fawn and her heart is as tender as it is true she is a girl who will love once and deeply and for ever how long have you known her let me see it was in my first year at the hospital it must be let me see yes it must be quite ten years now ten wasted years he repeated and his eyes filled with tears and his mobile mouth trembled ten years since then how time flies and life passes away unemployed unenjoyed but surely you ought not to complain you are young yet and wealthy and have only to ask to have my dear paul he said smiling sadly and laying a gentle trembling hand on my shoulder i am too much a spectator of life to seize the happiness that lies to my hand but don't let us speak of this subject any more it recalls too many bitter memories i made no demur for a week he was mine as the wedding guest was to the ancient mariners there was no hurry to extort the whole truth he would return to barbara of himself soon enough my insight was justified he returned to her that very night we were located in a curious double-bedded room in the little inland inn the doctor of medicine stood at the narrow casement looking over the lovely moonlit landscape the rich meadows stretched away peacefully and the air was drowsy with sweet country scents the doctor took his pipe from his mouth and pointed vaguely towards the horizon yonder he said half to me half in reverie yonder lives barbara so this is why he had come to the isle of wight poor mcgillicuddy we shall probably be seeing her to-morrow then i said with affected cheerfulness he shook his head i am afraid not he said turning towards me a full honest face shadowed by a melancholy smile he sighed moved away from the casement slid it half back and commenced undressing i followed suit and in another few minutes we were in our beds with candles extinguished and the moonlight streaming upon the floor only one of us slept it was joseph fogson m d b s c my brain was too busy to rest in vain i tried to think of nothing it went clicking away like a tape machine turning out thoughts as the machine turns out inches of news there was a little wind in the trees about midnight and the hour was chimed from some neighboring steeple at apparently uneven intervals these were the only sounds that came to vary the monotony of my thoughts still about a quarter past one when i heard a strange sound of muttering in the room my pulse stood still in another moment i was smiling at myself the noise came from fogson's bed he was talking in his sleep i trained my ears but could not catch the words i slipped noiselessly from between the sheets and glided in my white nightshirt across the strip of moonlight that lay between our beds i bent over his lips barbara he muttered barbara this time i felt only pity my indignation was dead if barbara was all he painted her his sufferings must indeed be poignant not to have culled this fresh and fair young flower of english girlhood must needs make life bitter to any one who believed in love and to my surprise fogson was a recreant to the club in theory if not in practice 
I placed my hand gently upon the big forehead. It was burning. Light as my touch was, it awoke him. He stared at me wildly. It's only me, Paul, I said soothingly. Thank heaven, he said. I took you for a ghost and was afraid. Afraid? I laughed gently. You, a materialistic doctor, afraid? Not of the ghost, he repeated. I didn't care a jot for that. My fear was that I should have to recast the physical theories of a lifetime and eat spiritualistic humble pie. But why are you out of bed? You seemed restless and feverish, I said. It is very good of you, Paul, he said gratefully. Yes, I suppose I was more knocked up than I imagined, and our long walk has overtaxed my strength. I suppose I was talking in my sleep. You were, I said, watching him narrowly as I probed him with the lancet. You were talking about Barbara. I do not wonder, he replied without wincing. Whenever I get among real English scenery like this, ivy-clad churches and granges and cows and the scent of the honeysuckle, my thoughts will go back to her. My brain conjures her up of itself. Great is the law of association, and it will prevail. Well, let it have its way, I said. Tell me about her again. It will ease your brain. The nervous currents will discharge themselves, then you will sleep quietly. Bravo, Paul, said the doctor. You have translated the confessional into its psychological equivalence. You deserve to hear my little story. It will entertain you and ease me, as you say. But you are sure you don't want to go to sleep? I do. I haven't been able to. Perhaps your tale will make me. All right, laughed back the doctor. But go back to bed, old fellow, or you catch cold, and then, oh, for gruel and physic. Ready? Well, here goes. Ten years ago I was a student at Sebastian's Hospital in Glasgow, for I have the honor of being a countryman of our president. I had little money and less expectations. I studied day and night and eked out my income by winning a few scholarships, which was easy enough, for I had taken unexpectedly to the profession and was considerably older than the average student of my year. I lived quite alone in a cheerless attic, with a skull, a box of bones, and a microscope for sole ornament. The district was shabby and gloomy, but it was near the hospital and cheap. The maid of all work was slatternly, and the table linen was dirty. I spent the day listening to lectures, committing to memory dull catalogues of muscles and chemical formula, and dissecting one wizened old woman. Eight of us were at work upon her, like the dwarves upon Gulliver. Some at the arms, some at the head, some at the feet, till she was whittled out of all recognition. I mention these things to show you that everything combined to make existence a gray fog. I was working for the degree of B.S.C., at the same time as for the M.B., so that I babbled of molecules in my dreams, as I did to-night of Barbara. I had no time nor thought but for my books and my specimens. The work was tedious to a degree, much more so to two degrees, though I had determined to master it. The treatises were written in an uncouth jargon and unenlivened by a gleam of fancy or humor or literature, and I have always been a lover of the human and the living. 
when i said that my existence was a grey fog i forgot the rifts in it my sense of humour now and then emitted a feeble radiance which pierced the leaden vapours which were closing in on my soul the students were such pigs and fools the lines of demarcation between first years and second years and third years were so childishly rigid the fellows had no sense of fun bob allen and tom sawyer had grown staid and decorous they cared so little for anything but the pecuniary side of the medical career the lecturers were rather better and i got a little amusement out of their idiosyncrasies one used to throw open the door of the lecture-room punctually at nine a m and ere his hand had relinquished its hold of the door-handle he would be heard saying the oesophagus gentlemen and before he had reached his desk we knew quite a number of the curiosities of the oesophagus another would say if you please gentlemen the functions of the medulla oblongata are etc as if we could alter the constitution of the microcosm at our own sweet will i was often very tempted to say that i was not pleased with the sentiments of the dental nerves or that i derived no particular satisfaction from the percentage of white corpuscles in the blood or that i strongly objected to the position of the pancreas or to the muscles being irritated but i never succumbed to the temptation another old fellow i remember had a trick of prefacing every sentence with the phrase as a matter-of-fact gentleman i dubbed him the matter-of-fact professor though as a matter-of-fact he was a very amusing and anecdotal lecturer and often illuminated his discourse by funny stories which he admitted to be apocryphal but which he invariably commenced with as a matter-of-fact gentleman but even these humours soon palled and ceased to amuse me they were not enough to counterbalance the gloom of all my surroundings after i had got into the groove of the medical work i began to take up the logic and the psychology which were necessary for the b s c i began with the psychology as the more novel and difficult of the two to tackle i flattered myself that i had no lack of logic but what psychology might be i knew not i had heard vague and awful rumours that it was stiff though i was not inclined to attach much importance to that my predecessors from early school boyhood had always called everything stiff to me the adjective was chiefly associated with glasses of grog i had no use for it in connection with study i started one night at ten and read on fascinated till daylight a new world had opened before me of which i had hitherto known nothing i read on breathlessly silent as cortez upon that peak in darien but it was a world of gloom and horror of this and the ebon shades and i explored it with a curiosity that was morbid from that day to this i have never had a thoroughly healthy thought for introspection was born in my soul and introspection is nothing more nor less than a mental affliction introspection is the highest and most intellectual form of lunacy physical desiccation had made me morbid enough to see the springs of this vaunted life of ours laid bare to magnify the grey matter of thought and love two thousand diameters under a microscope to hack and cut the human form bestial till every nerve was tracked to its rote every fibre and filament forced to reveal its function 
all this had made human life seem to me a poor thing and a brutish isolated from all human relations as i was the world became to me but a vast dissecting room where seemingly living beings strutted and fretted it by the reflex action of galvanized muscles my eye undressed the people i met on the street and stretched them cold and rigid upon deal-boards and turned up their muscles they were but cunning collocations of cells informed by an allotropic modification of electricity and hastening to dissolution disintegrating at the merest trifle but over all was the mystery of the human soul and now and then in moments of reaction the inadequacy of unconscious atoms to evolve their own analyzers was flashed fitfully upon me when i had hearkened to the message of the psychologist the last vestige of interest in life died away the last sparkle was taken from the cup of life leaving a dull insipid fluid it was the extreme empirical school into whose hands i had fallen and they stripped me of all my faculties and left me not a rag wherewith to cover my nakedness i had lost faith in everything else they robbed me of my faith in myself and left me a battered wreck i didn't mind knowing how my body worked but i rebelled against my mind being picked to pieces nevertheless in spite of all my inward revolts i was carried along on a stream of remorseless logic i lost my memory on which i had hitherto prided myself it was resolved into a bundle of associations none of which existed till called for though they were all waiting patiently outside the door of existence ready to come in when wanted i thought it was very good of them evidently they had been trained in a good school empirical as it was i learnt that there was no such thing as personality though real estate was unchallenged i mourned over my lost personality till i discovered that i had several personalities instead but i was not used to my own society and i felt rather awkward and shy i did not like having so many personalities i was jealous of their being me i wanted a monopoly of myself i had worked hard to train myself from earliest youth and i didn't see why these other personalities should romp in at this advanced hour kings and editors might express themselves in the first person plural if they liked but i had wanted the good old first person singular which i had used from childhood when i learnt that i hadn't used it from childhood but had spoken of myself familiarly by the name of joey i gave in with a groan i had started with two personalities and i must have grown them like teeth perhaps i had thirty-two of them i lost myself in the crowd by this time i was not sorry to discover that i did not exist life was indeed hardly worth having on those terms it saved endless complications with myself not to exist it was rather a nuisance though to have to continue to live all the same for it was only my eye that was put out by a mistaken kindness i was reprieved and allowed to exist intermittently by a succession of unrelated pulses in consciousness which mistook themselves for unity i was reduced to living from hand to mouth so to speak since the publication of professor ward's article in encyclopedia britannica each student is allowed a transcendental personality 
as well as an empirical personality, but that was before my time. The new generation is treated a good deal better than the old, and has all sorts of luxuries and facilities that were denied to us. There, there, I mustn't envy the young people. The world progresses, and I shan't be the man to grudge them the luck of being born later. I had no sooner lost my eye than reading some philosophy, I discovered that it was the all-in-all, the be-all and the end-all of existence. Without me, or some of me, nothing could exist. It was only by virtue of their relation to my consciousness that things could have any being. This great universe with its suns and stars and anatomy lectures was dependent upon me for bare existence. It was a sort of poor relation of my consciousness, which flourished when I shed the light of my countenance upon it and withered away into nothingness when I piteously shut my doors in its face. I was indescribably elated at the discovery and cracked a bottle of bass that night to celebrate it. I slept a drunken sleep of fourteen hours and missed my morning lecture. I could not start from the hospital till eleven in the forenoon, and when I did I was considerably surprised to see nothing on the evening bills about destruction of the universe, full account by our own correspondent. I felt sure that with the competition in the newspaper world they would not have missed such an important event. I had always wished to be alive when the world came to an end, as so long predicted by Mother Shipton and other prophets, not because I desired to be in at the death, but because I had a strong curiosity to see what the newspapers would say the day after, especially to read the indignant letters to the Times and the Leader and the Daily Wire. Anyhow, after this failure of my nihilistic attempt, I came to the conclusion that not the universe but philosophy was all my eye. As for the assertion that out of our minds nothing could be, I decided that it was manifestly untrue, since the philosophers were all out of theirs. The joke was that even the books themselves relaxed here and inserted a flippant passage in the desert of dullness, they asked what was mind, and they said, no matter, and they asked what was matter, and they said, never mind. On the other hand, when you inquired further what created mind, they said matter, and when you asked what created matter, they said mind, as if matter and mind were members of a sort of you-scratch-my-back-and-I'll-scratch-your society. Their arguments were always going round in circles, so that the realm of philosophy appeared to me like an intellectual dancing academy. At last I gave up the attempt to eat my own head, which constitutes philosophy, but not before a universal skepticism had settled on my soul. I saw that we were automata, moved by heredity and hypnotism and what not, the playthings of blind forces. The idea of our arriving at absolute truth with a capital T savored to me of grim humor. I became not only a pyronist, but a pessimist into the bargain. Picture to yourself, if you can, my soul starving among these arid surroundings, mental and material. Think of me cutting up bodies by day and minds by night. Imagine being devoid of interest in life who would go to weddings without joy and to funerals without sorrow, studying sedulously and unremittingly because it was more trouble to depart from his rut than to go on in it. 
think of all this and you will have a dim idea of what i was in the first year of my student period at sebastian's hospital it was while i was in this state that i first met barbara the doctor of medicine paused and drew a long breath the streak of moonlight had shifted and lit up his pale face like a glory i gazed towards him in reverent silence the radiant figure of barbara seemed to hover in the wan light the sweet sunny english girl whom my friend had loved and lost outside the wind had risen the casement clattered and the yews rustled mournfully as if in keeping with the tragedy that was being re-enacted in memory a chill air penetrated through the embrasure i shivered and drew the blanket closer round my shoulders the doctor continued End of section 11